thank you, Marion. Uh, thank you, Roz, who looked after me for the first two years. And thank you to this university for having a tradition of inviting outsiders in to speak. I feel it's a real proof of your belief in free speech that you've allowed me to ramble on at you for four years. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, here's my last lecture. Counterblast, a manifesto for poetry. I'll start with the Blast Manifesto, which was published in 1914 as part of a new artistic movement being improvised by Wyndham Lewis. Blast was an explosion of statements set out in bold typography in a tone of advert mixed with rant and chit-chat and signed by R. Aldington, Arbuthnot, L. Atkinson, Gaudia Brzeska, J. Dismore, C. Hamilton, E. Pound, W. Roberts, H. Sanders, E. Wadsworth and Wyndham Lewis himself. And it began like this. Long live the great art vortex sprung up in the centre of this town. We stand for the reality of the present, not for the sentimental future or the sacripant past. We want to leave nature and men alone. We do not want to make people wear futurist patches or fuss men to take to pink and sky blue trousers. We are not their wives or tailors. And it went on. Blast was already a counterblast, firing back at the futurist manifesto, which had roared into print in 1909 like this. We want to sing about the love of danger, about the use of energy and recklessness as common daily practice. Courage, boldness and rebellion will be essential elements in our poetry. Up to now, literature has extolled a contemplative stillness, rapture and reverie. We intend to glorify aggressive action, arrestive wakefulness, life at the double, the slap, and the punching fist. This irritable genre quickly spread. In the following years, there were manifestos for realism, surrealism, cubism, vorticism, dimensionism, rayonism, purism, orphism, dadaism, cerebrism, cannibalism, and everythingism. There were movements against pasta, Movements against looking and speaking. No more looking, no more speaking, declared Tristan Zara, who also acidly said, a manifesto is a communication made to the whole world whose only pretense is to the discovery of an instant cure for political, astronomical, artistic, parliamentary, agronomical and literary syphilis. It may be pleasant and good-natured, it is always right, it is strong, vigorous and logical. So be it. Counterblast is a manifesto in that tone of voice. Strong, vigorous, logical, pleasant and always right. <laughs> Counterblast expresses a personal conviction as if it were everyone's or at least by frequent use of the pronoun we, it implies a gang of poets with the same opinion, ready to materialize the slap and the punching fist. Manifesto, we bring you 
this Italian declaration of impatience. Manifesto. We speak on behalf of me. This inmost thought made mediterraneanly clear. Counterblast. We deliver a poetry lecture in response to blast. Because blast blesses the sea and it blesses the ports and it blesses England industrial island machine pyramidal workshop discharging itself into the sea, but it never once mentions the rivers. So we will speak about rivers. But rivers are things which are. And in common with all things which are, they include the reality of the past and the reality of the future, as well as the sacrapant sentimental present. Rivers are more than glimpses and more than noises. They are more. And we discover that we have to swim for a long time in a river to begin to feel that we are feeling its peculiar river flesh. And yet it is more than that because its peculiar river flesh keeps pouring in from the catchment. More water, more silt, more sewage, more brominated flame retardant, more bleach, more diesel. So then we have to live for a long time in the catchment of a river to begin to feel that we are feeling all the acreage contained in the word river. Acres of reeds and ragged robin, Acres of grasshoppers, aphids, rats and cattle. And acres of imported cattle feed and sheep dip. Acres of car parks and milk spillage and cotton buds and wet wipes. And yet it is more than that. Because then we glance down at the hand, carefully writing the word river at the top of the page in blue biro underlined. And our hearts flutter as we see the inky water and the watery hand that writes it. And we find we have to live among hands for a long time, shaking them and holding them to begin to know what a hand is and how small a tributary it is off the main body of water of the human. And after all, humans are dark inland pools full of anguish, and panic-stricken love, they are more than glimpses and more than noises, they are more. And that is where poetry begins. So this manifesto begins as a manifesto for poetry. And poetry is itself already a manifesto since its purpose is to manifest a deep thought deep enough to generate a form. Like the spirals of the inner ear shaped by sound, or a stoop shaped by shyness, honeysuckle by hawk moths, or laws by crimes, whatever keeps mattering makes a form. Dante, who thought deeply in Italian, formed his whole poem around the deep thought of light, and every line is lit by that decision in a patient exposure of his character. While Frank O'Hara, 
who thought deeply in American, invented personism, meaning every poem must be shaped towards one person as if spoken down the telephone. This manifesto is shaped around profusion, because once when we were eight, or at least when I was eight, I stayed awake all night trapped by a bedroom, and then dawn came and opened the trap, and huge white clouds out of elsewhere floated past, and I was suddenly released from the trap, and released from one stuck self into a series of hurrying other selves, which went on and went on and went on. That's why Counterblast is an advertisement for all those ancient poems which seem to spring from some deep principle of profusion. At least that is our declaration. There are two kinds of poetry, not mutually exclusive, though occasionally problematically out of balance. The poetry of scarcity and the poetry of supply. Counterblast is not a manifesto for the poetry of scarcity, that serious, circumscribed, interior, terrified voice of aloneness which we call lyric, although there is occasional muchness in lyric and there is also much lyric in epic. But this is a manifesto for the poetry of muchness, which we find everywhere in Homer. Because once we slept outside in a garden, or at least I slept outside in a garden, and I might have looked at gardens before, but I had not noticed what else a garden is other than surface. Gardens at night give off not the image of growth, but its form, which is a kind of multiple-minded multiple grammar, exponential, crystalline, and impossible to sense through lyric. We don't know yet what to call this quality. It doesn't feel like aloneness. It feels more like an algorithm for profusion, and we find it in Homer. We love Homer. We love the profusion of Homer. We would like to discover the inmost manifesto of Homer, meaning the mattering which makes his form and claim it as our own. At least that is our declaration. Nevertheless, we bear in mind Allen Ginsberg's account of visiting Pound in his 80s. Pound, who had such a clear mind, so unstoppably manifesting its deep thoughts, came upstairs, folded self in chair, hands crossed on lap, picked at skin, absorbed, then quietly, rusty-voiced like an old child, said, the intention was bad. That's the trouble. Everything I've done has been an accident. Any good has been spoilt by my intentions. The preoccupation with irrelevant and stupid things. 
Let it be clearly declared, manifestos are often preoccupied with irrelevant and stupid things. Often they are documents not of deep thought, but of panic and adjectives. Here is a manifesto full of adjectives written by an Austrian architectural firm to accompany a steel frame suspended in the air with flaming gas jets. We want architecture that has more. Architecture that bleeds, that exhausts, that whirls and even breaks. Architecture that lights up, stings, rips and tears under stress. Architecture has to be cavernous, fiery, smooth, hard, angular, brutal, round, delicate, colourful, obscene, lustful, dreamy, attracting, repelling, wet, dry and throbbing, alive or dead, if cold then cold as a block of ice, if hot then hot as a blazing wing, architecture must blaze. In the same overexcited and pleonastic mood, counterblast suspends its voice in here like a steel frame with flaming gas jets. Counterblast floats through here like a cavernous, fiery, smooth, hard, angular, brutal, round, delicate, colourful cloud. Like a drunk woman at a bus stop, Counterblast mixes up its similes because simile is the very form of profusion. Homer, that profusive poet, saw a hair inside a simile, lying under a leafy, thick-haired thicket. It was daylight, and rays of sunlight filled the middle air. But as if that daylight had been dark night, Homer saw through surface to the structure of relations which held that hair in the centre of its sphere, at the periphery of multiple other worlds. Like an elderflower composed of florets, each of which has a centre but is not at the centre. Like a starling surfing on a wave of starlings, like a moment in a lecture being this moment. In his three-day manifesto for similarity, Homer declared that Menelaus walked back through the battle, peering this way and that, like an eagle, peering this way and that, which they call the sharpest sighted of all winged things under the sky, whose highest eye, the quick-footed hare, lying in a leafy thicket, can't hide from when it suddenly plunges to put out the life. Like an eagle peering this way and that, which they call the sharpest sighted of all winged things under the sky, whose highest eye, the quick-footed hare lying in a leafy thicket, can't hide from when it suddenly plunges to put out the life. It actually forms crystals in the mind to read those words, with all their overing and undering exactness. 
The sky in that simile has two skies, an air at the top of which an eagle is floating and an ether which overtops the air. And in the world the far side of Menelaus, we've just witnessed Zeus in the ether clearing a cloud out of the air under which Patroclus is lying under sharpest sight lines of weapons. So that it feels as if that hare, whose name is exposed at the end of the line, like the name of Patroclus, with all its liquids drained, ptokes, is now in two places at once. And this is not some kind of literary cleverness. This is just a picture of a world in which thought happens outside the head. Thought in that world is one of the things that are. And it floats through multiple frames in a latticework of likeness, like air, like cloud, like thicket, like hair, like life breath, even as it vanishes. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the sliding device which separates and joins those frames, a small correlative word. Sometimes it is like and sometimes it is as. Ladies and gentlemen, like the body of Patroclus, dead and alive, hot, cold, cavernous, fiery, smooth, hard, angular, stuffed, here is the very hair. Lepus Europaeus, already blasted and counterblasted. Slit from the throat to the feet. The thin coat stripped from the bones, washed, soaked in salts, pickled, tanned, and drawn down carefully over a wooden or wire form. The form being the configuration of a hair's parts. Although in hair language, the form also refers to the shallow depression in which a hare crouches by day with flattened ears, and when it ups and runs, you can see its body shape printed on the grass stems like a mezzotint. That's what we call the form of the hare. <coughs> but when Homer thinks of form, his word is morphe, and he says that morphe is radiantly visible around the head of a good speaker so that when he walks through a city, everyone looks at him. Like once in a city we saw a birdman, or at least I saw a birdman standing on the pavement. From the neck down he was ordinary, in shabby coat and trousers tucked into socks, but his head was missing. He had pulled a grey stocking over his face. No eye holes. I think he could see through the wool and he resembled the grey neck of a pigeon or the shadow or beakless spirit of a pigeon. And he was standing in a circle of crusts on which pigeons were descending, staring out of all sides of his head, like an eagle. He was seeping outside in a great upheaval of wings and eyes with a bamboo cane in his hand, a rabbit snare looped at one end like a beak by Heath Robinson, trying to lower this snare over a feeding bird. But the bird, equally all-seeing, just sidestepped, pigeon-toed or jumped in a flap to another place or upwafted onto a rooftop and this went on for a long time. This was in lockdown.
It was not a performance. It was hunger. And the air seethed as if Homer had woven morphe around him, in which multiple bodies remained separate, but their hunger mingled. So he stood there between species, like the birdman at Lascaux, drawn sketchily in the crack of a cave. A fantastic hybrid in bird mask, wielding a staff whose pommel was a bird. And if you can picture those two matching but not identical birdmen suspended in the air above us with flaming gas jets either side of a mighty steel frame and radiating from each birdman a secondary frame of rotating birds and radiating from each bird a circle of crusts and radiating from each crust a tired baker opening his oven at four in the morning so that a night walker smells it as she passes and feels suddenly hungry and remembers the birdman. Then you will have a sense of the teetering architecture of Morphe. Architecture that has more, architecture that bleeds, that exhausts, that whirls and even breaks, whose structure is not steel. It is stronger than steel. It is simile. We declare that simile is not an image, it is an architectural form which holds multiple images together but not quite together. We declare that Menelaus was like an eagle but the preposition allowed the eagle to be also itself. Meanwhile, the hair was not like Menelaus, but it was fixed to the same frame as his likeness, bleeding and whirling in the same blaze. And we declare that this simile was made of something stronger than steel. It was made of the tiny joint work which surrounded Menelaus like a thought, in which Homer could see the self of Menelaus held in a structure of other selves. And this cloud of comparison, this crown of compassion, is the radiant form of epic, which Homer calls Morphe, and we call it a manifesto. It is a manifesto for likeness. It is a spacious sense of other selves. It is an architecture for profusion, it is the same tiny joint work as links one verse to another. It is like. It is like huge white clouds blowing over from elsewhere. It is like a pivot or suspended frame with gas jets on which the whole Iliad turns. It communicates one mind to another. It floats out of Patroclus in the form of a hare and later it floats out of Priam like an exile, and Achilles forgives him because he looks like his father, and perhaps also he looks like Patroclus, who was also an exile. We like this word, like. It is a stitch between things, and the Greek for stitch work is rhapsody. Manifesto for Stitchwork, written in Dutch for the Feminist Handwork Party. The Feminist Handwork Party is a political feminist artist movement that is dedicated to studying, repairing, speaking, patching up, unlearning and mending. 
We want to restore the disturbed relationship to our immediate surroundings and a damaged world as a whole. The act of repairing textiles plays an important part in this because it is an exercise in slowing down, embodying and transforming. Through this, we are connecting with the underexposed, long-standing history of women in which textile production was a daily reality. There is no end to these declarations of optimism and anger. We remember the stitch and bitch society which used to gather every month in a Devon village so that friendships could be mended and unmended. We remember the dark room where women of Normandy studied, repaired, patched up, unlearned and mended the Battle of Hastings and turned it into the Bayer Tapestry. And we remember Helen in her chamber, weaving a great crimson cloak with a double fold and stitching into it all the agony of the Trojan War. So that six centuries later, a manifesto was published by Hipparchus concerning the stitchwork of all that trauma. And here it is quoted by Plato. To show off his wisdom, Hipparchus made a manifesto of his many impressive achievements, especially his being the first to bring to this country the verses of Homer, and he made a law that rhapsodes at festivals must proceed through these verses in sequence by relay as they still do nowadays. Rhapsodes must proceed through the verses in sequence by relay as they still do nowadays. Rhapsodes were itinerant poets, trained in the grammar of improvisation. Rhapsodes performed epic in stitched sections, aoidos meaning song in ancient Greek and raptane meaning to stitch. It's probable that even before the laws of Hipparchus, there was already a code of courtesy, which encouraged rhapsodes to stitch their performances together so that by the time of the great Athenian festivals, it was easy to carry a whole epic between them, even 24 sections of epic performed over three days, and it never fell apart into tatters. That does not mean there was no rivalry between rhapsodes. One effect of this competitive collaboration might well have been the Homeric simile, joined to the story by a sliding device which enabled each rhapsode to add his own picture to the poem. There are 288 similes in the Iliad, and each one reads like a rhapsode's personal act of graffiti sprayed onto the story. At least, that is our declaration. Manifesto for Stitchwork, written in retrospect for the rhapsodes. Rhapsody is a similist movement that is dedicated to studying, repairing, speaking, patching up, unlearning and mending. Our manifesto is for the small words of the great poems, by means of which multiple minds may be stitched together. Our manifesto is for similarity, which is the form of profusion and it is not the same as metaphorism, which is the form of one thing turning into another, or symbolism, 
which is not a form but a convention of one thing being collapsed into another. Because similarity is not imagery, it is architecture. Similarity is the architecture of the plant world, which ramifies and modifies its stems first into leaves, then into flowers in order to multiply. Similarity is not a literary device. It is the natural architecture of the mind which evolved alongside plants in this place of supply which we call the earth. And we declare that Ezra Pound had profusive tendencies and was one of the clearest thinkers of poetry, but we would like to argue one point with him. He claimed that the primary pigment of poetry was the image, but it is not the image. It is the grammar, which in its interaction with the meter composes the melody, and in its interaction with the thought composes the deep structure of perception, which is otherwise known as imagination. Imagination is deeper than image. We declare that modernism, with all its isms, was essentially a lyric voice because it described the problem of perception rather than the profusion of being. And we declare that the epic form starts in an act of faith that both other things and other minds exist. And that this courtesy derives partly from the manner of its performance. And we declare that stitchwork runs its thread back from the terms of rhapsodic performance to become a stitch between frames, between scenes, between images, between verses. And yet also these performances were only made possible by the stitchwork of story, which is itself the inflorescence of the Earth's stitchwork. In view of which, we suggest that instead of endless poetry competitions, this university would do well to establish a festival of rhapsody every year, in which not only students, but administrators, porters, gardeners, cooks, actors, dancers, guitarists, politicians, sweepers, butchers, bankers, tinkers, tailors, engineers, dancers, management consultants, digital systems architects, future prime ministers and the homeless all stay up all night to carry between them one of the great stories which stitch us together and apart. And that further, each session of parliament ought to begin with all MPs performing one of those stories which derive from the ancient rules for kings, since the modern rules for kings are no different. And they state that because of mortality, the king is similar to the citizen. And that further, there ought to be a constitution written in verse, which affirms that everything alive is similar. We declare that this would alter the imagination and as Ted Hughes says, what alters the imagination alters everything. Because the imagination is the deep structure of the image of the human self in relation to other selves. And it is problematic when poetry chooses to neglect that. Let imagism be the poetry of surfaces. Rhapsody is the stitchwork of relations. At least, that is our declaration. But this manifesto tone is hard to keep up. 
And after a while, our declarations become too right, too good-natured and logical, and we need to take a breather. Especially since aloneness is one of the great pleasures in life. To sulk, to be misunderstood, to consider oneself inferior and for that very reason superior, to grieve, to brood, to dream, to yearn, and to look up from this aloneness at an incomprehensible world and boldly snip the stitch which holds everything together so that the mind flaps off like a tatter in the wind. That too is part of the long-standing history of textile production in the course of which rhapsody comes to mean the opposite of rhapsody. 1639, Rhapsody, an exalted expression or feeling marked by extravagance of idea and expression, but without connected thought or sound or grammar. I don't know what Hipparchus would say to that. 1764, Rhapsody, a literary work consisting of miscellaneous or disconnected pieces, a written composition having no fixed form or plan. 1837, Rhapsody, a miscellaneous collection, a medley or confused mass of things. 1880, Rhapsody, an instrumental composition, enthusiastic in character, but of indefinite form. 1915, Rhapsody on a Windy Night, portrait of the wind-driven tatters of the mind by T.S. Eliot. 12 o'clock along the reaches of the street, held in a lunar synthesis. Whispering lunar incantations dissolve the floors of memory and all its clear relations, its divisions and precisions. Every street lamp that I pass beats like a fatalistic drum. And through the spaces of the dark, midnight shakes the memory as a madman shakes a dead geranium. This 20th century rhapsode observes its own strict laws about tradition and the individual, but they are not the laws of Hipparchus. This rhapsode does not compose in shared light at a crowded three-day festival is not legally required to wait his turn, to listen and speak in sequence so that a narrative may be collaboratively carried. Instead, this rhapsode strolls alone through light, first moonlight, then streetlight, whose information is all interior. Three sets of eyes are shown to this rhapsode. First, the twisted eye of a woman in a doorway, then the empty eye of a child pocketing a toy, then the feeble, unseeing eye of the moon. Strange, dark light with no connecting fibres. Like the glass eyes of the stuffed hair, these anti-sense organs reveal not other selves, but the poet's own self over and over. Because the law of this poem is not likeness, but delicious, sceptical, cussed, introspective, frightened aloneness, whose similes 
are hallucinations, not stitches. The dangers of such work are obvious, said Ezra Pound, quietly, rusty-voiced, even in his thirties, already manifesting his opinions like an old child. One must be certain that one's mental character and idiom are sufficiently close to the norm to be comprehensible or significant. In this respect, Mr. Elliot is near the borderline. His temperament is peculiar. It is sometimes, as remarked heretofore, almost bafflingly peculiar. But on the whole, it is the average hyperesthetic one with a good deal of introspective curiosity. That's Ezra Pound. Rhapsody on a Windy Night was published in the second edition of Blast, which at least proves that hyperesthetic introspection was not so peculiar as to find no readership. It is, I repeat, one of life's great pleasures to stroll the streets at night, melancholy and cut off and surrendering to confusion. Street lights throw flat shadows in front of you as if everything were merely cinematic and you catch odd disconnected sentences out of windows and a man stands bleeding in the road saying, I could have smashed him, but he had such long arms. They were so long, they must have been the longest arms in the universe. And if it's raining and you shut yourself deeper and deeper into your coat, then all these images will remain retinal effects, not imaginal effects. And you'll wander back home and make a manifesto of symbols because to symbolize is to assume that humans have to fabricate connections because they don't already exist. Or if you do make a simile, it will be a paradoxical picture of the mind not working even as it brilliantly does work. Midnight shakes the mind as a madman shakes a dead geranium. The culmination of the genre of the dead geranium is the genre of the artificial geranium. When instead of walking the streets at night, you sit in your room typing into chat GPT, write a poem about an eagle and a hare in the style of Shakespeare. And what you get back is this. On a morn of golden light, when spring had cast her gentle kiss, a hare did gamble across the glade in search of sanctuary's bliss. For high above, with piercing eye, an eagle watched his prey. His wings outstretched, he ruled the sky and sought to seize the day. The hare, with instincts honed and sharp, did sense the danger near. His ears alert, his limbs a-quiver, as dread did turn to fear. He darted swift like lightning's flash to tangled bush and briar, while overhead the eagle's gaze burned fierce with raptor's fire. As shadows danced in dappled light, the hare, his breath a-hold, did pray to gods of wood and field and creatures brave and bold. O sprites of earth and hidden groves, protect me from above and grant me shelter in your arms that I may live and love. Yet fickle fate with heart of stone did turn her gaze away and in that moment swift and sure, the eagle made his play. His talons bared, he swooped down low like thunder's fearsome roar, and with one fell and deadly strike, the hare was his forevermore. Thus ends the tale of hare and eagle, of life and death entwined, for nature's course doth weave a path both cruel and divine, and in the dance of predator and prey, the cycle turns eternal, each meeting fated 
each parting brief in life's great stage infernal. It's impressive. <clears throat> I wonder why the algorithm has chosen the meter of Arthur Golding rather than Shakespeare. That seems, in fact, a sensible decision, given that heptameter needs to sound clunky, whereas pentameter ought to sound subtle and human. So far, so good. And I imagine one could keep refining the instructions to get rid of such impossibilities as a hare gambling in fear, or fate being at the same time fickle and stony. But I notice that whereas a poet sees an image sharply before summoning words, an artificial poet prefers ambiguous images. For example, how do you focus on shadows dancing in dappled light when the shadows are themselves the dapples? The language is impressionist because it is not situated. That is the primary rule of AI poetry and it should not be underestimated. Each time the algorithm uses the word I, it does not mean the same situated self that we mean. And this difference spreads through the grammar, altering first the meaning of we, and then the meaning of this, and then the meaning of that, and then the meaning of near, and then the meaning of love, and then the meaning of death, and then the meaning of with, and then the meaning of like, and so on and so on, until the poem reveals its mighty contagious absence in that final line. Each meeting fated, each parting brief in life's great stage infernal, which is a malicious demon's manifesto with no understanding of actuality. Why is each parting brief? Is it because AI operates in unextended space in which parting has no meaning? Does that imply that death doesn't exist? And is that why the hare is gambling in fear? Is death brief? In which case, please decide whether this is a poem about fate or resurrection and adapt the form accordingly. Since the gambling, rhyming heptameter implies constraint, but this poem implies no awareness of constraint because it is not about things which are. Since things which are must suffer the constraints of place. But in the genre of the artificial geranium, there is no place and therefore no point of view, no topological self, no resistant other, no matter, and therefore no mattering, and therefore no meaning, no death, no flesh, no weight, no love, no life, and most importantly, no rules for kings and no care for citizens, only pattern. So if we are going to alter the imagination through AI and not end up with artificial values, we surely need to teach it the deep grammar of the situated self among other selves. And to that end, we might start by teaching it about living situated geraniums rather than artificial ones. Manifesto for geraniums. Counterblast remembers the scent of living geraniums in the temperate house at the Oxford Botanic Gardens, maybe 10 minutes walk from here. You slide the door open and inhale hope. It is said that geraniums were created when the Prophet Muhammad swam in a river and hung his shirt on a mallow to dry. The mallow courteously lifted the shirt to the sun 
and in return it was transformed into the geranium, whose leaves smell of a laundrette in heaven, lemony and dry, almost starchy, but bright, sharp, mint clean, hot and vigorously alive. It is said that the geranium is a beaked flower, named after the Greek for a crane, Geranos, the very bird which Homer likens to gathering armies and Dante to lines of grieving souls carried by the wind. Counterblast points out that this bird-like plant, if given a little water, will manifest its character in a profusion of scented leaves, which twist at last into flowers, which whirl their stamens at last into a winged vortex of seeds, which finally fly and make more, which make more and then more. In view of which, those who stand by geraniums might well stand next to Wyndham Lewis, Ezra Pound, Gaudi Brzeska, not to mention Aldington, Arbuthnot, Atkinson, Dismore, Hamilton, Roberts, Sanders and Wadsworth, and join their irritable group shout, long live the vortex. But what I want to know is why advertise one vortex when you can choose to advertise thousands? Long live everything whose roots and growing tips advance in searching circles. Long live the spiral twists of human muscle and the helical lines on my fingertips. Long live the funnel spider. Long live the whirligig beetle who swims in bewildering circles, then she snatches a bubble of oxygen from the surface and hides it under her wing. Like an aqualung, she breathes from it when she dives. Long live the path of the microscopic rotifer revolving along an axis, long live one eel coiled around another and blast whatever unstitches those spirals. Blast fatbergs, blast the steel trees of the blast manifesto, which are no good for shadowing the fish. Blast intensive farming, which makes too much slurry, which makes too much algae. Blast maize crops, which compact the soil and blast with expletive of waterfall every single chemical that has leached into our rivers, including brominated flame retardants. He who empties his rubbish upstream has seen only an image of water, but counterblast stands for the syntax of water, which stitches the catchment together. Long live the grammar of water. Long live that long preposition whose linear momentum is soft enough to swim in, but hard enough to cut hollows in limestone in which first echoes come to live, then bats, the offshoots of echoes, who hear the river upside down through the spirals of the inner ear lined with tiny twisted hairs. And at night, they meet you in a quiet lane with the news that the world is more than you thought. More bats, more leaves, more water snails sucked to stones, one on each side of the water, and long live water, which moves by means of two contradictory spirals. Long live the rivers. Long live those turbulent sentences, the Tyne, the Thames, the Tavy, the Tor, the Torridge, the Avon, the Oakment, the Dart, the X, the Severn, the Wye, the Spey, the Dee, the Tweed, the Ribble, the Derwent, the Medway, the Ooze, the Trent, the Wye, the Plym, the Axe, the Clyde, the Neen, the Team, the Don, the Ban, the Ribble, the Air, the Tees, the Nile, the Seine, the Tiber, the Danube, the Scamander and the river Dnipro. And there are more, of course, more rivers, more streams, more runnels, there are more. 
There are more than 1,500 rivers in the UK and more than 3 million in the world. So that now I have a choice. Either I can name and praise each river in its particularity, which by my calculation would keep us here for 34.72 days and nights, or I can try to declare the manifesto being endlessly expressed by all rivers, which I find in Homer, but I also find it in the story of Annie Edson Taylor, who fell on hard times having been burnt out of her home and lost her savings to a clergyman. So she decided to make some money by shutting herself in a barrel with her lucky pillow and rolling over the Niagara Falls. Her friends pumped the barrel full of air and off she floated like a hare immobile in a thicket. And although she survived with only a gash to her head, she had clearly crossed that edge when you come to realize what you are in relation to other things. And rusty voiced like an old child, she later said she would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon knowing it was going to blow her to pieces than make another trip over the fall. That is the best manifesto I know of the violence and frailness and mercifulness and terrifying muchness of the natural world, which is to say, all things that are. At least that is my declaration. Thank you.